Hi, I'm Keith Law, and welcome to a new episode of The Keith Law Show. I will be joined in a few moments by my colleague, Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees, written a couple of interesting pieces uh, just at the end of last week, which I encourage you to check out. One, talking to Yankees minor leaguers in the wake of one of their own testing positive for COVID-19, and another on some grassroots efforts to try to support minor leaguers and their families as they go through a period of uncertainty with limited money coming in only for a short period of time, how how some major leaguers and some fans even are trying to help those players out while we wait to see if Major League Baseball will do anything further to try to support them financially. Um, I do have a couple of pieces in the works right now. They're the last thing I wrote for subscribers to The Athletic uh, was the ranking of the top 30 prospects for this year's draft, which we don't know exactly when it's going to happen or what form it's going to take. But because scouts have seen so many of these players already, I at least could put together a rough ranking of the first round talents for this year. I do have um, participating in a big project we have coming up on the baseball section where we're going to be talking about um, a number of us are talking about our favorite baseball video games going back to, in my case, a game that I used to play a lot in the 1980s. Um, and that will, I believe, actually run next week. So keep an eye out for that. Uh, also, uh, just a reminder, my book, The Inside Game, is still scheduled to come out on April 21st. Well, uh, my in-store appearances are, I assume at this point, probably not going to happen because non-essential businesses are uh, closing. And all I might personally argue as a reader that bookstores are incredibly essential. I do understand the importance of everybody staying home. I am staying home now. I am only leaving the house for absolutely essential reasons like going to the drugstore. So encourage all of you to do the same. But you can still pre-order my book and you can order it online. You can order it from many independent bookstores who would love to have your business at this point as they try to stay afloat for the next two months until hopefully maybe by mid-May or so it is safe for them to reopen. And then at that point also, I hope to get back out on the road and do some talks and some appearances and sign copies and meet as many of you as I possibly can. So again, it's called The Inside Game. It's coming soon, April 21st from HarperCollins. Feel free to check it out online and I hope you will uh, choose to order a copy. Now it is my pleasure to be joined by my friend, Lindsay Adler, who covers the Yankees for The Athletic. Lindsay, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. So you wrote two really interesting pieces at the end of last week, um, both uh, related to the current shutdown in baseball. Let's talk. Uh, we'll talk first about the one you wrote on the Yankees, uh, who had a minor leaguer test positive for COVID-19. And you spoke to a number of players, there are a lot of them, I spoke to you on background, obviously, or just didn't want to be named. But uh, for folks who haven't read that yet, and I encourage everyone to do so, tell me sort of about what was the general tenor of the reaction to finding out one of their teammates had tested positive and what that meant for uh, the Yankees' response in their minor league camp. You know, all the players I talked to had a really good, um, you know, thoughtful perspective on on a player testing positive. You know, they everyone I spoke to said it's – you know, it, it, it could have been any of us. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. It doesn't matter how it happened. You know, we know that this is a pandemic and they all had a really healthy perspective on the fact that, you know, the baseball shutdown and their, and their quarantine is, is not the most important thing right now. And they all, you know, were very upfront about that. And, you know, it's, it was, it was almost hard to balance because some guys, were just kind of bored and making the most of it. And, you know, they were kind of the ones who had more of the relative stability. And then there were a few player, a couple of players I talked to who, you know, really needed this spring to 
established themselves. They had, you know, one guy said he had basically trained his butt off in the off season to try to, to try to, you know, break camp in a good position. And, you know, they're kind, they're mostly shut down from training. And I think it's a scary time for a lot of people because even though they'll be paid four hundred a minimum of $400 a week through April 8th, there's no, there's no security beyond or, you know, for what they would have been paid during the season. And so, you know, I, I don't think it's a situation anyone wants to be in. And even though they all understand it, I think it's a much more vulnerable and potentially career ending situation for some of them. That quote, I'm glad you brought up that quote because I actually thought that was the most interesting one in the the piece about the player who said he worked his butt off this offseason. He said, I think he said it as I needed this spring, mm-hmm. um, which to me is something I don't even think I thought that much about, especially because I like, kind of can be pretty dismissive of spring training. But it is true if you're like a player on the fringe that, and particularly with the Yankees, right? They've had so many, the Luke Voits, the, mm-hmm. the Gio Urshulas who've, who've totally rejuvenated their careers going there without obviously many of these players probably don't want to be identified, but do you think that's even more the case here where the Yankees have players lost that opportunity to work with Yankees coaches? Cause it does seem like I think both hitting and pitching the Yankees are clearly doing some different things that work. Having seen a lot of their system too, they, they do stuff with pitchers. I don't know what exactly it is, but they have some formula that absolutely helps guys get better. Yeah, I think I think it's a tough system to crack, and you know, especially if you're a senior sign, um, mm-hmm. that's you're especially in in kind of a tough position. You're coming into the system older, um, without as much stability, and so yeah, and and you know, the the Yankees have the luxury of you know really having a lot of minor leaguers developing them and. I think it is kind of a mix, you know, my expectation in terms of how it will affect some of the, you know, roster bubble or not, not even major league roster bubble, but minor league roster bubble guys is that, you know, either, you know, losing training time for now and then hopefully training once they get home, either, you know, that will not be enough to put them in in the position that they wanted to be in or, you know, some of them who just need work and a lot of people need work right now. I think, I think we'll see some people walk away because of financial reasons and that at some point, if you can't just, you know, stay afloat by offering hitting lessons in your hometown, you know, some of these guys are legitimately thinking about like, Maybe it's time for me just to pursue a career, like a capital C career away from baseball. Yeah, I have wondered that about, which is not specific to the Yankees too, is this the thing that um, drives a lot of these players kind of on that bubble, especially you think of guys mid to late 20s where it's the double whammy, right? They realize their odds may have even gone down for the reasons you just detailed there. And then on top of that, it's like, wait, I, I need to go make some money. I mean, that's, I think, mm-hmm. the biggest thing that drives guys away. It drives guys away often younger. I remember the story when I was with the Blue Jays, my boss, uh, J.P. Richardi, would tell about a guy, I think he was with Oakland at the time, where they drafted someone out of an Ivy League school. And like a year later, he said, I, you know, I can go make a lot more money doing something else. 
And if you're a minor leaguer right now, you're realizing you're not being treated particularly well by the sport. You're generally not treated particularly well by the sport, even in good times. So why not go try to find something where you can make some money, potentially bank some money? I think most of these guys are coping with with like no savings, which kind of leads to the second thing you wrote, which is about these grassroots efforts to try to help minor leaguers uh, who are all kind of, um, you know, many of them are struggling financially. And a lot of it was led by big leaguers, current big leaguers and wives of current big leaguers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I wrote that because I wanted, because I wanted fans to see that, one, you know, there are major league families who are thinking of the minor leaguers at this time because I feel like, you know, whenever I talk about minor league pay issues, I hear a lot about, you know, well, why don't the major leaguers do more? And aside from the fact that it it's not, it's literally not their jobs, um, <laughs> you know, it's, <laughs> I, we do understand the financial disparity here. And so I wanted people to see that. And then I wanted to highlight a couple other ways that, you know, people who are not, you know, making $8 million in a season um, are working to make a difference. And I think, you know, when this stuff was kind of popping up, I saw a lot of people looking for ways that they can help. And I think it's almost unfortunate in my eyes that so many small gestures like a a gift card to Chipotle or whatever can make a difference for some of these guys. And so I just wanted people to see that um, there is some, some basis of support here. Yeah. That uh, the gift card to Chipotle thing came from, uh, if I remember, if I'm remembering correctly, that was a fan who was talking to a minor, one of the fans who started Mm -hmm. another of these grassroots efforts, which Mm -hmm. to me, I have that same sense, had the same sense reading your story that I get when you see these stories praising like some (laughs) kid who raised money for a classmate's medical care or something or the kid, oh, this kid had to walk eight miles to to work so his boss bought him a car. And it's like, yeah, but that's just, there's a structural problem. That's a nice story here, but that only happens because the structure sort of forced it to happen. And I feel like that's the problem here now. I mean, coronavirus aside, this industry does not treat its minor leaguers well. It certainly doesn't pay its minor leaguers enough. They went out of their way in 2017 to get federal protection to continue not paying their minor leaguers well. And so it was very, I felt very mixed reading that piece because this is stories of people doing good, good people doing good things. But the flip side is, Yet none of this needs to happen in the first place, right? Major League Baseball has to come out of this once we get back on the field. Like they have to fix this structure here that just I think takes terrible advantage of the minor leaguers. And I, I, I hope your story just kind of highlights more just how big the disparity is between how major leaguers tend to be treated and how everyone else in the industry is treated. Yeah, I, I, I think stories like that are uplifting because they're ultimately very depressing. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's unfortunate, but I think that's exactly right. And I think the fact that there's lots of people, there are lots of people in lots of industries who have no job security, you know, and and uncertain futures. I mean, the hospitality industry, restaurant industry is going to get devastated by this. So I'm not saying that this is um, something that's unique to baseball at all, but I feel like we are, it is 
it just further highlights the fact that even in the best of times, there's a problem with how Major League Baseball treats, doesn't pay, et cetera, its minor leaguers who ultimately, like, whether or not you're going to the big leagues, you're serving a purpose, right? They, the, the stars have to have somebody to play with and just paying those guys mm-hmm. virtually nothing is, it feels a little exploitative to me. Well, and I will always just wonder about it from a player development standpoint. You know, if, sure, you have farmhands, but don't you want them playing to their best of their ability to help sharpen the tools for your top prospects? It's just, there are elements of it that, you know, and and some teams have obviously done a lot better. I think the, I think the Giants give their minor leaguers like a, kind of like a healthy food spread after every game or something Mm -hmm. like that or you know at least it used to be and I think you know starting with at least making sure they have access to better nutrition um, kind of does resolve some portion of the player development side for me but it is just the thing like if you're if you're going up there to the plate and you can't make baseball your sole focus then you know then then it's it's just a tough thing for me to for me to kind of square. Absolutely. If you've got to spend the off season right doing something else to feed your family, support yourself, bank some money so that you can afford to feed yourself properly during the season, what are you not doing that major leaguers get to do in terms of training or just conditioning, just routine conditioning? They think mm-hmm. people just assume fans just take this for granted. I wonder to what extent major league executives take this for granted. You send guys home for five months. You don't see them. Some organizations mm-hmm. stay in better touch with those players. Some organizations, maybe less so. Um, and just assume that those guys are doing what they're supposed to be doing uh, in the off season to prepare themselves for the, uh, for the upcoming season. Switching gears a little bit. I know you share my interest in cooking and you have been going very <laughs> hardcore uh, after bread baking, which I think is mm-hmm. one of the ultimate stay inside comfort food uh, type of activities. Uh, you've been very hardcore with your sourdough starter. So, so first of all, how, how is, how's the, how is the, the, uh, your uh, attempts to create life? How are those going? Um. <laughs> I'm struggling. Mm-hmm. I had a starter, I think, last year, but the baseball schedule kind of ruins it and mm-hmm. then, you know, ruins your ability to really maintain it. And then I wasn't home much this off season, And so this is kind of my first chance and I'm using a different starter recipe. Um, so I'm not as familiar with kind of the texture that I'm getting, but yesterday I somehow... I had, I had actually started two starters just to see which one would be better for me to screw up with less. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> pretend that's pretend that's a real sentence, but right. I somehow <laughs> screwed up both of my starters in one day. Oh. I added twice as much water to one of them, and then I left the other one on top of the stove as the oven was heating up to 500 degrees, and part of it got baked. Oh. So... I have salvaged what I can, and now it is one, hopefully, eventual super starter. So um, it seems like, despite my best intentions, I cannot uh, get on get on the straight and narrow in my <laughs> in my bread baking pursuits here. I have tried that. I kept a starter going for about a year and a half. This was a long time ago, um, probably about 10, 
10 years or so ago, maybe longer than, no, I still mm-hmm. lived in Massachusetts, so more than that. And I liked it, but I never felt like I was getting enough of a difference out of it. Like mm-hmm. if you take me, if I go to a real bakery and have their mm-hmm. sourdough, it's like, oh, I totally get this. This is a completely different product. It's different texture, different taste, completely get. When I did it at home, it was like, this is just good bread. It's good bread. I mean, it's mm-hmm. still going to come out as good bread. Like if you noticed an actual difference, either in flavor, texture, just how you work with it. Anytime you've done, worked with a starter versus like, I assume otherwise you do like an overnight starter mm-hmm. instead. I I did with my previous starter. I used um, the recipe from Ken Forkish's kind of, um, kind of the Bible on it, but it's the... <sighs> It's a little bit tough and it requires his his recipes require a lot of equipment and so I wanted to try something else but I really did notice a difference with the starter I had the last time and I'm just hoping that with you know a few more days and maybe not accidentally baking half of it that um <laughs> that my that my future loaves will kind of get back to that um fluffiness and sourness. Have you been to Ken's pizza place or, or any of his places in Portland. It's on my, the pizza place is on my like master list of pizzerias to go to. But the one time I was there in Portland last year, actually I went to a pizza Shoals instead, which was good, but I still want to get to mm-hmm. Ken's. Yeah, I have not. I I have not. The, the lack of a major league baseball team in Portland is slightly problematic. Yeah, no, if, if, if there were a team in Portland, I would, I would have a pretty good season. Yeah. Right. I would be like, I, I don't necessarily need to cover a specific team. I've never done that, but I'd be like, yeah, go live in Portland for six months. Sure, <laughs> sure. Twist my arm. Yeah. Also, we have a request from Adam Dr. Laros, a longtime follower of mine, uh, who mm-hmm. said, no specific question, but there better be some Oasis chat. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, give me an Oasis song that is not, uh, that is among your favorites that's not one of the hits. Ooh. Um, can I go with... I'm actually going to kind of veer. I, sure. when I was in San Francisco last year for the, uh, the Yankees had a series against the Giants, and I went to Amoeba Records, and they had a bootleg vinyl copy of an um, MTV Unplugged show that Oasis did, where Liam got too drunk, couldn't perform, <laughs> and and Noel sang everything, and Liam was heckling him from the balcony. Oh my God. So that's amazing. even though, you know, really you don't want to hear Noel try to carry an entire song vocally. Yeah. Um, I, I enjoy, I enjoy those versions of, of the songs we all love and know because it's just, it's funny to me. Do you like either of their, any of their post Oasis projects, the high flying birds or BDI, or I think Liam is now doing stuff on his own, actually under his own name. I, most of them have not really clicked with me. No, I don't really listen to Noel's stuff. I listened to a couple songs off of Liam's album that came out like last summer, but mm-hmm. really they were just him basically saying, Noel, please forgive me. Please come back to me. I want to get Oasis back together. So, <laughs> so that was that was about the extent of my interest in it. And I was I like I think I the stuff I like from Oasis is the stuff everyone likes from Oasis. The first three albums or so in particular, mm-hmm. and even their B sides like Acquiesce or Rocking Chair from that period or 
step out, which for years they couldn't release because they had to give eventually gave Stevie Wonder, I think, a songwriting credit for it. Like I loved all that stuff. I probably stayed with them longer than most people did because I was stubborn. I kind of like their <laughs> sound. But then, yeah, their solo. I listened to everything those guys put out, solo or side projects, whatever. And aside from one song here or there, I've been like, nope, they need each other. They're much better. Even if they hate each yep. other, they are much better when they have each other. Yeah. And one thing I will say about Noel that I respect, unfortunately, is that he doesn't care about catering to what fans want. And he knows that an Oasis reunion is what fans want. And he knows that, you know, fans basically want him to stop making music and to go back and only play those three first albums. And he refuses. And it kind of sucks for me. But I respect it. I, I respect the purity of it. Yeah. And I think it comes through in, well, both of them, but like in their public commentary. Um, mm-hmm. especially when some band like the DMAs or an Australian band who had some songs I liked and um, they had a song I think it was called For Now from their last album that sounded like a great Oasis song actually <laughs> and when someone says to especially to Noel it's like oh these guys are you know sound a lot like Oasis you know he's like well, that's just bollocks you know you think most people are so honored and flattered that people find my music so meaningful it's so, so influential and he just does not care one bit yep it's impressive yeah it is right in its own way it probably does not make him somebody i want to have a beer with but i still find him incredibly no. entertaining i don't want him to be anything else yes yes absolutely. you want that authenticity right absolutely that is a rare thing at this point um and i don't think we'll be seeing him on some star-studded instagram video singing imagine anytime soon no and i did go I've gone to a few reunion shows. Like I was at Jawbreaker's first mm. reunion show at Riot Fest, and that was great. And then I went to a couple of their two out of three of their Brooklyn shows. But then when they kept when they kept playing shows, I was like, "No, I'm that bad fan who only wanted you to play one show and then go away forever." <laughs> <laughs> so I don't even know how I would feel about any of this. But yeah, I saw Slater Kinney in. October, September, October here in Philly. This was after Janet had left the band and then obviously got in a car, a serious car accident. So it was just uh, Carrie and Curran playing. And it was fantastic though. And I wouldn't, I'm like, I'm not a huge fan of their original. Like I don't know their first few albums inside and out. They played a lot of songs that I couldn't have named for you, but they were great actually. I went in with that trepidation, right? It's going to be like a, I knew it was their second tour after getting back together, but it was their first without all three original members. It was like, it's just going to be like, yeah, we're just going to come play the hits and collect the money. And no, it wasn't at all. Actually, I was very pleasantly surprised. I don't think that's the norm for bands that get back together after whatever, 15 years apart. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Excellent. Well, thank you for jumping on the call. I really appreciate you talking to us, especially about those uh, two pieces, um, which I think uh, one, I, found particularly interesting given sort of these long-standing structural issues around how baseball treats its minor leaguers. And also just like, this is the kind of sports coverage that we need to be doing more of now, one, obviously without games, but two, like this is having pretty significant impact on the individuals within the industry. And I think you really highlighted that well in both of those pieces. Well, good. It was, um, it was nice talking to you. It was um, nice 
covering some of those things as, as much as it kind of made me sad. But, you know, <laughs> it's, things, it's things that I figure people enjoy learning about. So That's Lindsay Adler. You can find all her stuff on The Athletic where she covers uh, the Yankees and obviously now a whole lot more. So even though there are no games going on, tournaments have been canceled, leagues suspended, no live games on TV now in any sport, there's still a lot of great writing on The Athletic like those pieces I just mentioned from Lindsay. And we still have about 400 of the best sports writers out there still doing a lot of work. I'm part of a lot of these discussions on our Slack channels about things that are coming. So I still encourage everyone to subscribe and the athletic can help keep you connected to the teams, the athletes, the personalities in all of these sports that you love. Sign up now to see for yourself the creativity and storytelling that sets us apart. If you go to theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W, you can get 40% off an annual subscription. The stories that draw all of us to sports, even when there aren't games going on, those won't go away. So go to theathletic.com slash K-L-A-W for 40% off an annual subscription. We hope to see you there. I put out a call on Monday for some mailbag questions uh, via my Twitter account. I'm just at Keith Law on Twitter. Feel free to follow me there. You can find me on some other sites as well. I'm on Facebook at Keith Law Writer. I generally just post these mailbag requests on Twitter. But if you want to send me one through any other format, send it through Facebook. Uh, send it through my own personal site, The Dish. Feel free. I'll save them up and then go through them on Monday. We have just a few questions uh, this week. First of all, Alex Bates, CBJ, Alex underscore Lax. I think that's what that is. Why do you hate the Reds? I don't hate the Reds, Alex. I'm sorry. I don't hate any team. If you think that, that's kind of a you issue. So I encourage you to work on that a little bit. Uh, at Thunder McRobert asks, what would you rather work with? A top 10 major league team with a bottom five minor league system or 20-ish, uh, I assume you mean sort of around 20th in the majors team with a top five minor league system. Obviously variables involved, but seeing how important minors are if the major league team is already high end. Well, if you're asking who I might want to go work for, I have no intention of, of going to work for a team uh, anytime soon, certainly. But if somebody were to call and ask, you know, a couple of teams have, have asked if I might be interested in coming back, I would think that the things I know that I can do, the ways I could potentially contribute to a club would be much more meaningful with a team that was trying to build. Now, that could be a team that is you know, in the bottom 10 of all of baseball, but has a top minor league system. It could also be a team that's just not good anywhere, right? If you're a team that's not very good in the majors, but your minor league system is depleted, maybe after years of, uh, of giving away draft picks or trading prospects or just maybe some poor decision-making, that's the kind of thing I would be more personally interested in getting involved with and also think that I would have some skills that could potentially contribute both on the evaluation side and then on the process side about talking about making better decisions and working with maybe mentoring other people. Not that I'm going to teach people specifically how to scout, but I can teach them maybe how to make better decisions while they're scouting. Again, I'm not actually looking for a job here. I don't want anyone to think I'm campaigning for one here. I'm just saying that's the kind of thing that would interest me and I think would be in alignment also with the kinds of things I think uh, I think I could potentially do well and help somebody. Lil Jimmy, James O's, and then a whole bunch of numbers after that. Assuming the draft happens, might high school players or college players be adversely affected? This was already a college-heavy draft. I think it'll be even more so now because teams will have a higher degree of confidence in their evaluations of college players because they're older than they were in high school players because they're younger, thus have more variance in their potential outcomes. And I would expect a high school player to look to potentially change more from, say, last October to this spring than a college player would. 
Rick Delaney, Rick Rain 04 asks my view on undertaking a novel so long and time consuming that it hinders reading X number of other books. For example, in the time it takes to read Finnegan's Wake or Marcel Proulx, one could have read eight other books. Uh, I've never read Finnegan's Wake. I read Ulysses. It took like three weeks. I had two other books with it to help me understand Ulysses. I still don't really remember a lot of it. Um, I have read the first book and then half of the second book of In Search of Lost Time. It's like seven books and 4,000 pages in total. Um, Yeah, I'm kind of out on that. I've done a few of those things. And some of them were worth it. I read Infinite Jest. It took two weeks. It's over 1,000 pages, but I thought it was amazing. I also read Gravity's Rainbow, which is about 800 pages. It is inscrutable. It is occasionally gross to no particular point. And it wasn't that funny. That was the biggest thing was I thought it would be funny. Uh, It's not like I don't like Pinchon. I thought Inherent Vice was hilarious. So by and large, I don't do that anymore. I will say there's one or two exceptions, books on my list that I'm, I've been sort of reading a little bit of C.J. Cherry's Sightine, which is an award-winning sci-fi novel that I find kind of slow going. Uh, but what I chose to do instead was read a little bit, put it aside, read something else that's really fun, and then I'll get back and read a little bit more um, because that's otherwise I'm not going to get through it. And if I try to spend two weeks reading the same book, I just kind of get antsy, right? I want to be reading something else, which I think is what you're getting at there with the question. Uh, Ryan Welsh at Ryan Welsh asks, do some orgs give more to their minor leaguers than others in terms of perks, money lodging, etc.? If so, have teams found any benefits other than morally? Certainly the Blue Jays a couple of years ago announced they were going to pay their minor leaguers more. There are other teams that do more in terms of food or uh, better quality lodging. Cleveland, I know, built a substantial dormitory on their campus in Goodyear, Arizona. They provide food. A couple other clubs have headed in that direction. It's too soon to say if they've actually found benefits, and they probably wouldn't tell us if they did. I find it very hard to believe that there will not be a tangible benefit in in addition to the fact that they're simply doing the right thing. But it'd probably be five years before we'd actually know that. And last, uh, Matt Santa Spirit M Santa Spirit uh, says, since you've been working from home for quite a while now, what productivity advice do you have for those of us who are now in it for the long haul? P.S. Should I take back my Mickey Moniac authentic jersey? Well, I'd keep it. I just don't know that it's going to be worth all that much. Uh, In terms of working from home, yeah, I've not worked in an office formally actually since 2001. I worked some, you know, maybe 30 days a year in the office in Toronto, but I still largely worked from home. Uh, Definitely uh, little things I do, maintaining some kind of daily schedule. It's easier uh, now that I have a kid. Of course, we've lost that now with the schools being shut down for a while, but certainly getting my daughter off to school, uh, you know, made me get out of bed, get up, get ready. Always, I almost always try to shower and get dressed in the morning as if I'm going somewhere, even though I'm not going any farther than like my home office or my kitchen table. Um, I maintain constantly maintain checklists of things that I need to accomplish that are both work things and personal things, and I do try to mix them up a little bit. One, just I try to get through as many things as I can in each day. So this sense of satisfaction sort of keeps me moving forward, and also the ability to move back and forth between I just did a big work thing. Now I'm going to check two things off of the personal side of the list. Um, I think for me, at least personally, kind of keeps me fresher and a little bit more engaged. There are days like when I was doing the Top 100 Prospects package where it was just work writing six, seven, eight hours a day broken up by just stopping to prepare a meal or something, sometimes writing later into the evening, which I don't really like to do because I don't think I'm as sharp, um, but I would have to do that. But as a general rule throughout the course of the year on a typical work day, nothing's typical about what we're having right now, I try to just create structure for myself. And I'm cognizant of the clock and cognizant of how many things I've already accomplished 
and looking at other things and think, how long is it likely to take? How many of these things can I potentially do between now and whenever my workday needs to end for whatever reason? Is it picking up my daughter, making dinner, or I have other plans? Uh, you do have to find what works for you, right? We're not all the same. We all think differently. and We all have different attention spans, for example. Um, I'm certainly easily distracted by things. And so I have to put myself in a situation where the distractions are reduced if I have a test that's going to require 100% of my attention. Not everybody has that problem. So think about what works best for you and experiment. Try a few things. We all have about two months, maybe more, to try out a few things to see what makes us more productive workers at home. That is all for this week's episode. Thanks so much to Lindsay Adler for joining me. Again, I encourage you to check out the two pieces she wrote at the end of last week. You can find them both on The Athletic or on The Athletic app. Just uh, search for her last name. It's A-D-L-E-R. I am Keith Law. I will uh, hopefully have at least one piece up for you later this week and then keep an eye out for the video game piece, which will run at some point next week as well. I will be back also next Monday with another episode for all of you. If you're enjoying the show, please leave us a five-star rating and a review on iTunes, Google, wherever you happen to listen and subscribe. And please tell a friend. Uh, We're all home with a lot more free time than we had anticipated. And uh, hopefully that means time for more people to listen to podcasts. The more people you tell about this, the longer that I'll be able to keep doing this show. Thanks so much.